after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed I have come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied. A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, friends, it's great to be with you this evening. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege uh, of being the Vicar or Senior Minister at St Jude's. Uh, and we have a wonderful passage uh, before us this evening, uh, rich uh, in deep in its theology and its encouragement. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, on Friday the 24th of June, I had the privilege of attending a funeral of an inspirational young woman. Uh, in fact, a woman known to many people at Parkville, uh, Sal Messer, Sally Messer. Uh, she had a life full of promise and energy, even though she was a demon supporter. Uh, but she was struck at a young age by a very debilitating illness. 
Uh, initially, it just robbed her of her energy, but then it robbed her of her movement, of her ability to talk, uh, of her ability to breathe, and then eventually it robbed her of her life. From a worldly point of view, Sal had very little to be joyful about. Attached to machines that would help her breathe for much of the last few years of her life. Wasting away, bound in bed. Yet if you were to meet her, you would have met one of the most profoundly generous, fun and yes, joyful people that you could ever meet. What on earth gives people like Sal that joy when on every other angle her life would seem to be the least joyful thing possible. It's interesting, this question is the very question that we see in this passage. Uh, There are lots of amazing uh, uh, things that that Jesus speaks about through chapter 16, which is part of the farewell discourse which Jesus gives to his disciples, his close followers, uh, right before he dies. Uh, In doing this, he's preparing them for what's about to happen, that he's about to go and be crucified and be raised to life again. But also, he's actually preparing them for their mission to go to the world and proclaim the gospel. And although Jesus' words are not spoken directly to us, we are not in the upper room, we are in the lower dining room of uh, Ridley College, uh, they are words spoken for us. And I think there's much we can learn about this turning grief to joy that Jesus encourages his disciples to do. There's so much more, by the way, than just that. There's a whole lot here around prayer, around Jesus' relationship with the Father, which we just haven't got time to delve into. So if if that was the kind of bit you were really looking forward to, let's chat, but it just won't be uh, during the sermon. So let's look at the text together, starting in verse 16. It it may well pop up behind me. If not, uh, there's Bibles around. Uh, Jesus starts by telling the disciples more, as we'll see in a moment. He says, uh, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. It's kind of like peekaboo, right? Now you see me, now you don't. And understandably, because they're human beings, the disciples are a little confused. Uh, actually, there were, as we read on, we'll see there were actually two points of confusion. One is around what Jesus meant in verse 16. What does it mean, you, I'll be here, then you won't see me, then you will see me? But secondly, notice, they're they're confused around what Jesus means when he says, because I'm going to the Father. Um, That happened earlier, by the way, in chapter 16. So it's not as if you've missed anything. It's just uh, previously in chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. And so they're like, we're even more confused now. And you can see how these two things might kind of fit together. I'm going to the Father, you won't see me. There's an understanding uh, of these two things kind of coming together perhaps as one question. And the way this kind of section is structured, in verses 19 to 24, Jesus answers the first question around what does it mean that you won't see me, then you will see me. And then in verses 29 and 30, he addresses the second question, what it means to uh, go and be with the Father. We're going to concentrate primarily on that first section, 19 to 24, just because time uh, is limited. And what you notice as we read those verses, and as Wayne read them out so well, the centrality of joy and rejoicing as a theme that recurred. And the NIV editors have decided, helpfully, I think in this case, uh, to give us a little heading, the disciples' grief will turn to joy. Now, there's more than just that. 
but I think they've captured one of the key themes in this section about Christian joy. What does it mean to have Christian joy? And I think we learn at least, or are reminded perhaps, of at least three things around Christian joy from this passage. Uh, The first one is that Christian joy is not optional. There are no Eeyores in the Christian faith. Christian joy, now I said Christian joy, just to be clear, Christian joy is not optional. Secondly, we'll see that Christian joy is not fragile. It's robust. It's substantial. And thirdly, we'll see that Christian joy is eternal. It never ends. It is always there. So, not optional, not fragile and eternal. So, let's look at each of those one after the other. Firstly, Christian joy is not optional. Now, in verse 20, Jesus seeks to address the disciples' confusion. Notice he says there, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now what Jesus is doing here, he's talking about the time between his death and his resurrection. Now notice the word resurrection isn't explicitly mentioned in this verse, but it's, uh, it's an overt promise that Jesus has made time and time and again uh, throughout uh, his life on earth. And this is the event that will change anything. He's going to say, oh, look, I will die and you will weep. And my enemies and your enemies will rejoice. Finally, we got rid of that Jesus guy. But then again, you'll see me. You'll see me, the resurrected Lord, and you'll rejoice. And that's what we see without giving away, you know, spoiler alert, right? That's what happens at the end of the Gospel. <laughs> But notice here, Jesus isn't saying you'll see me at the second coming and rejoice, although, you, although of course we will. And neither is he saying after you've breathed your last, then you'll see me and rejoice, although you will. No, he's talking explicitly about his resurrection. After the resurrection, these disciples now in this room will see the risen Lord Jesus. And notice is they will rejoice. Not perhaps you might rejoice. He's not saying, you know, you slightly more emotionally in touch disciples, you know, those who cry in all the movies. Like my wife, she cries in, she cried in Top Gun for crying out loud, right? Uh, she's a wonderful woman. Uh, she cries in everything. So I'm saying, yes, those people will rejoice and the kind of hard-hearted disciples won't. And maybe, by the way, he's saying those who have had a nicer and blessed life will rejoice as opposed to those who've had a really tough life. Now he says, all will rejoice. Resurrected people, uh, those who have seen the resurrected king, rejoice. Resurrection people rejoice. Christian joy, brothers and sisters, is not optional. And to kind of help us understand what's going on, he gives us a really powerful example in the next verse uh, and says, Joy, which is kind of a strange thing, is like a woman in labour. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. And joy that the child is born into the world. I've got uh, three kids and so I've observed the process of birth three times. Uh, And our second kid, Will, needed an elective caesarean because he was breached, he was upside down. And been the right way up ever since, but he was uh, uh, upside down at the time, which ironically is the right way up. Uh, and so we had to book it in. 
You go and kind of, it's kind of like getting your car service. You've got to book your time in. And normally they suggest within a week of the due date. So we went in and Julie spoke to the booking person who was delightful and said, yes, okay, he's due on, on this date. Let's go a week. Oh, that's booked out. Let's go the day after. That's booked out. Let's go the day after. That's booked out. Got very close to the due date. Then we went past the due date. Then we went a week past the due date. Ten days after his due date. There's a free time. Let's book him in there. And I, I was, to be fair, a little concerned that this perhaps was a little late. And sure enough, on his due date, the first time and only time in his life he's been on time for anything, uh, he decided he was coming. Anna went into labour. Now, what would have been very unhelpful is if I'd said, Anna, this is exciting, but really we've got ten more days. Could you, can you just hang on a little bit? The time has come. It's not optional, right? You don't, you don't get an opt-out clause at that point. The child is coming. Joy is coming. There's, there's, there's no option. It's inevitable. It's unstoppable. Now, if you're like me, you, you may be slightly cynical. As Australians, we tend to be slightly cynical and have this kind of idea that joy perhaps is an optional extra. And, you know, I'm always slightly suspicious around people who are always happy. You know, is there something wrong with them maybe? You know, I've got some friends... Uh, and they're a delightful, happy family. They always seem nice. And they have matching T-shirts. They get them... Yeah, I, I feel your pain, brother. They get them made... And it's not just one set. Every year they make a new set for holidays. And it's got the name and the year on the back and there's even a slogan. Right, this is sickening stuff. Anyway, but they're just so happy. Now, OK. Perhaps more seriously, um, some of us might face things in our lives which actually make it really hard to be joyful. Perhaps there are relationships, perhaps there's illness, perhaps there are setbacks, perhaps there's concerns, perhaps there's things in your life that just went, oh, my life is not joyful. Maybe you're, you're wrestling with mental illness. Where, where's the joy with that? Where's the joy in depression? But notice I'm saying here, not that you have to be happy and joyful, I'm saying Christian joy is not optional. And then what, do I, what do I mean by that? Well, what does being a Christian mean? What, what does the word gospel mean? Well, the word gospel literally means news of great indifference. Right? Is that what... It, no, no. It's news of great joy. That's what the word literally means. A, a grand announcement that, that brings people to party in the streets. When the Lord Jesus is born, what do the angels say? Behold, I bring glad tidings of great joy. To be a Christian is to be joyful in the gospel. So you could say a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And that seems like a pretty good definition of a Christian, except that's what the evil spirits believe too. The evil spirits know that Jesus is the, son of, is the Son of God. In fact, in the Gospels, they're often the only ones who get it right. They know that Jesus died on the cross. They know that he, raised from, uh, he was raised from the dead. But there is no joy for them in that truth. The difference is that a Christian knows those truths and is filled with joy. 
knows that it's not just news, it is gospel news, it is good news. Tim Keller says, at the very essence of faith, there has to be a kernel of joy or it's not faith. And so, Christian joy is not optional. It's just a recognition that the gospel is good and joyful and astonishing news that Christ has died for a sinner like me. And if that doesn't bring you, not to buy a matching T-shirt, please, but if that doesn't bring a deeper and more, more substantial joy in your life, look back at what, what I've just said. The Lord Jesus has died for you and been raised to life for you, a sinner. Undeserved. Christian joy is not optional. And secondly, neither is it fragile for this reason. Now, what I mean by this is Christian joy doesn't either deny suffering, say it doesn't happen, nor, nor is it threatened or broken by the harsh realities of life. It is robust. And this is very much in contrast to our worldly perspective on what joy is. Because worldly joy has to either avoid suffering or deny suffering or somehow kind of get it out of the picture. And social media is a very, uh, a very powerful tool of showing us what our world thinks joy is. It's called image crafting. Have you heard that phrase, image crafting? Where you have this online persona where everything is perfect. I have a niece who, uh, I'm not on Insta, but well, I've got an Insta account and, I didn't, and I'm old, I don't understand what to do with it. Um, take photos of food apparently, or yourself, or both. Uh, she takes photos of herself, but not one, a number of photos, close to 50 or 60. I don't know why, but there's a slight variation in the head angle. Uh, uh, and then she will work out the best filter to put on. There are filters, you know. I don't know why, but you put a filter on there. And then you put down hashtag no filter. Yeah, right. Uh, and then she will not post until after five or six at night. I said, why is that? That's when you get the most likes to see how perfect my life is. I didn't know that. So tip, tip for young people out there, want to get your Insta post up, post after six. But before 10, apparently that's the peak Insta time. Now, why, I'm not having a go at my niece who I love. She's a lovely Christian girl. But what's behind that whole cultural movement is to say we need to project a perfect, crafted image of our lives where nothing has gone wrong. That's the picture of joy that our world sees. Uh, author Samantha Hearn writes, the internet is now a fundamental tool of communication and with the booming social media grabbing more of our attention, we've learned to be masters of self-publicity through posted pictures, curated timelines and breathless status updates. Indeed, if social media serves one overriding purpose, it's to convince the world that our lives are fascinating, exciting and near perfect. Hashtag blessed, Right? No one posts their messy room unless it's sort of ironic, right? In other words, worldly joy places the responsibility for joy in our own hands and says, you make it happen. You craft it, you develop it. You change the circumstances of your lives or ignore or airbrush them or deny them and then you'll have joy and peace. Get rid of illness. Find the right job. Find the right partner. And that is an incredible and overwhelming and indeed impossible weight for us to bear. 
because we are fragile. We, are, we know it only too well. We can't bear that burden. But Jesus has a very different view of what robust joy is. Notice, by the way, he doesn't promise the joyful Christian that it will be a life full of daffodils and perfect, uh, perfect photo opportunities. He says, no, no, there'll be pain and suffering and grief. Verse 20. You will weep, you will mourn, you will grieve. I mean, that first part of that, of that verse really makes it onto a Christian motivational poster, right, at Kurong. But he promises that in spite of those things, your grief will turn to joy. The joy of knowing Jesus, because he is secure, he is trustworthy and loving and has defeated death, means that our joy is not fragile. It is robust. Indeed, we see that these disciples who hear these words then give their lives willingly and joyfully in the service of God. because their joy is robust. And once again, this amazing picture of this woman giving birth helps us understand what's going on. Back in verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is being born into the world. See, notice the woman doesn't go, she's not in some denial, like, there's no pain in childbirth, don't worry about it. Now, any, any woman who's been through childbirth will say, that is clearly wrong. And any man who's sat with a woman in childbirth will know, that is far from the truth. Notice it says there, she forgets the anguish. Literally, it says, she remembers her pain no more. Now, it's, it's not a case of amnesia. So, kind of, it's wiped away. That when the Bible speaks about, about not remembering anything anymore, like it talks about how God remembers our sin no more, it no longer becomes the dominant or driving feature in her life. Something bigger and, and more powerful has taken over that pain. And she's furiously and lovingly and joyfully looking at this child and therefore forgets the anguish. Something even bigger than her pain has come. doesn't mean that she denies the pain or even may still not be in pain. It's just this pain cannot compare to this precious child that she's now holding. And the joy is so overwhelming, it reshapes her outlook. That is Christian joy. It doesn't deny the harsh realities of life. It means that your joy is grounded not in your circumstances, but in Christ. It is not fragile. And what this means is, as Christians, it means we can actually be honest about our own fragility and uh, about our own pain. Because we've not invested our entire personhood into it. It means we can care for others who are in pain and suffering. We can admit that our world is broken and sinful. It is not perfect. In fact, we are called not to run away from suffering, but even to be deeply involved and care for those who are suffering. Why? Because we have a robust joy in Christ. Not denying that suffering is there, not saying it doesn't matter, saying, no, it does matter. But in Christ, we have a secure joy, which means I can then help those in need. I can then help those who are suffering. Christian joy is robust. And part of this means, thirdly, of course, that Christian joy is therefore eternal. 
See, Jesus promises his disciples in this passage that they will be filled with joy when they see him resurrected. Like, now you don't see me, now you see me. You will filled with joy. And the question is, well, that's great for them, but I'm not in that upper room and I didn't have the privilege of seeing Jesus resurrected for that time before he was ascended into heaven. What about us who have yet to see Jesus face to face? What does Jesus have to say to us? Well, let's quickly go back to that, to what Jesus first said in verse 16. In verse 16 he said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. So he's saying is, you, that is the disciples, you won't see me, and then you, the disciples, will see me. It's about the disciples seeing in both cases, or not seeing. The focus is on what the disciples do and don't see. But now have a look at me at verse 22. See if you can pick up, there's actually a really subtle but really important difference in what Jesus says. He says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Did, Did you notice the difference? He doesn't say to them, and you will see me again. No, he says, no, 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 I will see you again. He, he's, he's flipped it round. Now, why is that important? Well, he's saying here, literally, they'll rejoice in their hearts because Christ will see them and no one will take away their joy. That is, even after he ascends, that joy will remain. Even no longer, they no longer see him, he always sees his own. He sees you. There is a deep and profound joy that comes from knowing that your Lord and Saviour always sees you. He knows you. Right now, he, he knows you. And he will continue to do so after his ascension and for all eternity. The disciples were no longer able to see uh, see Jesus, but Jesus could see them. We cannot see Jesus, but Jesus can see us. Right now, we have a Lord and Saviour who watches over us, which is extremely comforting. And and notice too that he he builds on this fact that our eternal peace and joy is in him, particularly emphasised at the very end, back in, in verse 33. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is promising, look, you're going to face trouble. That's the given, but take heart, take courage, be of, in the old English, be of good cheer, as opposed to bad cheer. I didn't know what bad cheer was, but you can get bad cheer. Good cheer, I think it's just for emphasis, really. Now, on what basis? Well, it's not that you've overcome the world and are a special person. It's not that God's somehow given you some special power to do it. No, it's because Jesus already has overcome the world. And that word overcome was often used in the context either of a court battle or a military campaign or an athletic competition where the winner would win in face of an obstacle, a big obstacle, to become the victor and be triumph. A bit like when Mike Phillip and I play Scrabble, Mike is always the conqueror, without fail. Not that I'm much of an obstacle in that case anyway. And so these first followers of Jesus had joy and peace and courage in a world which was full of suffering. In fact, they would suffer greatly for the Gospel. 
not simply because they were united with an old friend. As wonderful it is to catch up with old friends. I caught up with some old friends recently on holidays. It was a joyful experience. But there's something much deeper here. It's because their friend Jesus and our friend Jesus, through his suffering and death and resurrection, had laid hold of life, resurrection life, for them. And that's why we rejoice. It's saying death is not the end. Death does not win. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And the fact that, notice Jesus commands us to do this, by the way, it wasn't just a suggestion. He says to you and he says to me, take heart, I've overcome the world. And the fact that it's a command tells us that we're going to struggle from time to time to do this. You give commands because people forget to do things. With my children, I give them commands, get off your screen, because they're on the screen. Take courage. Why? Because we are in Christ. So when you're struggling, the command is not just to stay in your struggle. The command is to take heart. So how do you do that? Well, can I say this? Often we are encouraged to listen to our heart, which I understand the kind of context behind that. That is, be honest to where, to where you are. But I want to say, preach to your heart. Listen to your heart. Your heart says, I'm troubled. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Then preach to your heart. And say, in Christ Jesus, there is eternal life. Preach to your heart. The resurrection has happened. Christ has overcome the world. Preach to your heart that in Christ and through faith in him, there is the astonishing eternal love of God the Father a part we hadn't even covered in our text. Preach to your heart. That is what gave Sal tremendous joy. She could preach astonishingly well to her heart. And it was a heart shaped and blossoming and overflowing with Christian joy. It was infectious. See, from an earthly perspective, there would be nothing but sorrow and anger and bitterness in Sal's life. And people are like, why, why aren't you bitter and why aren't you angry? And there are certainly moments of bitterness and anger. Just as for a woman in birth, there are moments of pain. But the extraordinary joy of, of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and how firm a foundation that was for her means that she had actually overcome all those things. Preach to your heart. Because Jesus has overcome, we too can overcome. Let me pray giving God great thanks for this amazing truth and that we may be Christians, brothers and sisters, who are shaped by this Christian joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing passage in John's Gospel how in you there is a deep, eternal, unbreakable and irresistible joy that though we weep and mourn and grief, they will all turn to joy because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Father, we uphold all of those who are suffering and are feeling the weight of of sin and, and fragility in this world. May they be open with you and may they find that deeper 
and more abounding and more flourishing joy. And may we all preach to our hearts that Christ has overcome. In whose name we pray. Amen.